So today we're listening to the second movement of Dvorak's New World Symphony. Um, this is the Largo movement, and probably one of the most recognizable themes from the New World Symphony. Likely heard it as a funeral march, movies, or heard it played at various times, especially particularly solemn occasions. Um, the New World Symphony is one of my all-time favorite symphonies, and a very popular one at that. Um, Dvorak was a Czech composer who was actually uh, the leader of a conservatory in America for a while, and composed this particular symphony while he was visiting as a sort of tribute to American music and to American values as well. Um, the symphony is itself kind of traditional, very romantic, um, even though it's rather after the peak of romantic composition, um, but it uses a fairly unique structure insofar as the first movement introduces two major themes, and those themes are repeated and sort of recontextualized uh, as each movement of the symphony goes on, to the point where all of the themes come together in the last movement, build to this incredible crescendo, which itself, weirdly, is not the end of the music, but then goes on. Um, it's a really heartfelt composition, like the whole symphony together is, is worth a listen if you get the chance. Um, and a worthy introduction to sort of Slavic and Russian composition and a good compliment for Dostoevsky and his own sort of careful and compassionate attitude towards his characters. All right, so today we are talking about that biggest and sprawliest of all those big, sprawly Russian novels, The Brothers Karamazov by Fyodor Dostoevsky. Um, and this one is wild. Like, obviously we can't read the whole thing. It's, you know, 800 pages long and just massive and dense and, like, you could take a whole semester and just study just this book, as is probably the case with most of the writers we've encountered in here. Um, but nonetheless, I wanted to sort of give us a taste of what Dostoevsky is getting at with his depiction of religion and the Grand Inquisitor and the devil and the chapter by that name. Um... This is our one sort of glance into this early modern period before we sort of get wandered off and, you know, meet with Shaw and company. You'll know that we aren't going to talk about any realistic novels here, mostly because it doesn't really fit with our class theme. Like, you can't very well tell the story of Faust or Don Juan from a realist's perspective. Um, the supernatural elements of both stories are both kind of really important to the way that those stories are told so you get rid of them and there's not a whole heck of a lot left um but Dostoevsky is a neat little study because modernism very much is combining tenets of both realism and romanticism and you can see that Dostoevsky is using both realism and romanticism um his characters are very mundane their interactions are very realistic they could totally actually happen the basic thrust of the novel is that it is about, you know, this murder that happens in the family of the Karamazovs, um, and the sort of drama that circulates around each of the Karamazovs dealing with it or possibly being implicated in it, and the sort of Karamazov passion standing in for the, the passion of the Russian people altogether. Um, so that gives us this opportunity to, like, see this very realistic situation with this very romantic elevation. The romanticism of this novel and of this work is imposed by the characters, not by the author. Um, this is not like Goethe talking about how Faust is, you know, 
this symbol for human striving and where you get like in the text God talking about how Faust serves him but only confusedly. Um, you'll notice that Dostoevsky's narrator here is careful. Um, he doesn't actually offer very much in the way of insights into the way that, they're, that his characters work. Instead, it's the characters themselves who are romanticizing their own activities. Um, and this is typical of Dostoevsky. Like, almost all of his works have a character who, you know, backs down or, or stands up at the, the beginning of some long chapter and then proceeds to, you know, narrate their ideas and deliver a pamphlet. Like, um, there's a whole section in Crime and Punishment where, where Raskolnikov goes on a tirade to this random police clerk um, in... Uh, the idiot, there's a character just lying on a couch basically reading his ideas to other people. Um, Demons is positively full of characters who each have their own ideas and their own perspectives. Um, and in The Brothers Karamazov, we get several fairly long philosophical diatribes from Ivan Karamazov. Um, and that's kind of where I want to start here. Um, with the Grand Inquisitor, this major, you know, philosophical essay... Um, of Ivan's um, and we should keep in mind the levels like the layers of narration here um, Dostoevsky the writer is writing this novel there is a narrator that Dostoevsky has concocted for the purpose who occasionally interferes in the telling of the story um, but the story of the Grand Inquisitor itself is told to us by Ivan not with the the piece actually like sitting in front of him, but he's sort of summarizing it to his brother Alyosha over their lunch. Um, so we should keep in mind that the ideas being presented in this Grand Inquisitor have less to do with what Dostoevsky believes, or even what his narrator believes, as what Ivan believes. Um, this has a lot to do with the character of Ivan Karamazov, not with the actual ideals that Dostoevsky wants to get across. Um, so you should be careful if you find occasion to use, you know, Dostoevsky in your paper or something similar. Um, he is not so straightforward as all that. Um, he is not going to give us his own opinion of what the devil is or of what Jesus is or of what the, the church is. Instead, he's filtering his opinions by talking about their, his character's opinions. Um, and one of the things that Dostoevsky is very concerned with here and elsewhere is this sort of Russian liberalism, so to speak. Um, there's a new intelligentsia in Russia, and it's kind of out of control. Um, remember, we talked about in the, the lecture on the 19th century that, you know, Peter the Great had sort of wanted Russia to join the European nations and, and to become industrialized and become a power. And to that end, in the 18th century, he builds all these universities and all these, you know, new institutions and ministries and so on, trying to sort of follow up with, with European aspirations. Um, and he largely succeeds. He builds all these fancy universities. He makes Russia into a center for culture in its own right. Um, they're always a little bit behind, though, a little bit backwards. And the Europeans generally aren't going to include the Russians as one of the great European powers until rather late in the 19th century and the early 20th. Um, but notice there's all of these young students hanging around in Russia now, but the infrastructure isn't in place for them to get academic jobs like there's a handful of universities and they're turning out students at this crazy pace but they're all unemployed 
They're all getting crappy apartments in St. Petersburg and in Moscow, and they're all joining the civil service and getting these dead-end jobs that don't go anywhere. They're highly educated, they're highly cultured, they're very well-read, and they have nothing to do with it. Um, and in Russia, this largely sort of manifests as a whole bunch of people like getting you know tiny amounts of money by publishing their essays in all of these weird periodicals that just like spring up in the night um just as we talked about how like europe is constantly threatened by revolutionaries and these revolutionary ideas this is the backbone of it in russia all of these disenfranchised students milling around with all their big ideas and nothing to do with them ivan falls into this category in fact, most of the characters in the Brothers Karamazov have these very typical Russian archetype to them um, that Dostoevsky is exploring. Uh, on the one hand, you've got the father, uh, Mr. Karamazov, who is passionate and gluttonous and lecherous and has no restraints whatsoever. He's a landowner after the old type with no restraints who you know has basically turned into a petty tyrant in his own right. Um, Dmitri, Mishka here, or Milka, um, he is passionate. He is the Russian lover of wine and women, and he has this big heart, and he weeps easily, and he gets into fights easily, and he's, you know, just utterly consumed by his own emotions and passions. Um, Ivan is this scholar. He is this intellectual. He has the same anguish that all of the other Karamazovs have, but it is tempered by his intellectualism, how well-read he is, how much he wants to distinguish himself as a writer and as an academic, as a scholar. He sees himself like shoved off to the corners of the world here in Russia, and he wants to be a part of the European academic scene. He wants to be a full professor. He wants honor and glory. He wants to be published and become a great artist um, and can't. Like, he is still this backwater, you know, like, hick son with pretensions to academicism. Um, Alyosha is the final one, and you'll notice that Ivan is talking to Alyosha here. Um, Alyosha is a young monk initiate. He is training at the local monastery under the elder Zosima, who is like a very revered and well-received uh, monk and sort of like practically a saint in the community um, insofar as these things exist in Russia. He is known as a holy fool um, in Dostoevsky's sort of language and in the, that Russian tradition. Um, so the scene that we have here with the Grand Inquisitor, Ivan is in town for the first time in a long while, um, and Alyosha is talking to him. Like, Alyosha is just sort of bumming around, doing jobs for his monastery, visiting with his family, and observing that things are getting kind of tense. Um, he meets both Ivan and Dmitri at his household, and it turns out that Dmitri and his father have some, like, actual violent beef to deal with, and Ivan is not helping the situation. Um, so Alyosha confronts Ivan about this, and Ivan explains that he basically doesn't give a crap, and that the world has kind of fallen apart around him, and he no longer feels any sympathy for it. He delivers this long speech in the chapter before the Grand Inquisitor called Rebellion, where he explains that, like, there's so much evil going on that even if he were to believe in God, to believe in Jesus, he very well might not accept salvation because he finds it unjust that sinners of this magnitude can be saved. In short, he doesn't 
want to save his brother or his father. He doesn't feel any obligation to because he thinks that they're so evil that they don't need his help. Um, that it would be wrong to help them become better, to fix their problems. Um, and he backs this up with this story of the Grand Inquisitor. And I know the Grand Inquisitor story is rough. Like, it's out of context, it's this random chapter from this book. It is really self-contained as far as chapters go, more so than the, the Devil chapter, I think. Um, but it's also just all of these long philosophical passages where, you know, the Grand Inquisitor is just like talking and talking like villainous monologue style at the mysterious Jesus who showed up. I realize it's rough and I realize it's very grounded in, in religious iconography, but it's important to notice here what Dostoevsky is saying about religion through Ivan. Um, again, we shouldn't take this as being, you know, one-to-one -one with Dostoevsky's own opinions. It may very well be fairly closely aligned. Dostoevsky was also historically very suspicious of Jesuits and of the Catholic Church generally. Um, but notice that this has much more to do with how the Church is perceived at this point in time. Um, so here we have the setup. Like, Alyosha and Ivan are talking at lunch, and Ivan begins to explain this essay that he wrote about the Grand Inquisitor. Um, he says that it is the 16th century. We're all the way back to the Reformation, the very beginning of, of our class. Um, Catholicism was riding high, and then all of a sudden the Reformers showed up, and they're wrecking this, the place, and the Catholics are responding with the Inquisition, with this radical seeking out of heresy and quashing it wherever they find it. Um, it's a dark time, a scary time. Um, this is when the Inquisitors are given authority to kill people as they see fit, to torture them into faith in Christ, and they execute their their responsibilities with a sort of horrifying efficiency. And then in the midst of this Grand Inquisition, in Spain, in the center of where all this is going on, Ivan tells us that Christ shows up. Um, so it he writes, um, and this is page two of our of our little PD or dot uh, doc. Behold, he deigned to appear for a moment to the people, to the tortured, suffering people, sunk in iniquity, but loving him like children. My story is laid in Spain, in Seville, in the most terrible time of the Inquisition, when fires were lighted every day to the glory of God, and in the splendid auto de fe, the wicked heretics were burnt. Notice that Ivan is emphasizing the irony here, that the fires were lit, the heretics were burned to the glory of God, that the church is in this direct opposition with what is actually good, what, with what the Bible actually teaches and represents. Oh, of course, this was not the coming in which he will appear according to his promise at the end of time and all his heavenly glory and which will be sudden as lightning flashing from east to west. No. He visited his children only for a moment, and there where the flames were crackling round the heretics. Here we have Jesus shows up. Like, he's not willing to say the name here yet, although it is very clear that's who he's referring to. Um, this is God come again, and he even specifies this is not the second coming of Jesus that's talked about in Revelation. Nope, this is just a visit, um, like a tiny little visit. And he's here, and notice that everyone respects him. Everyone sees him and recognizes him immediately. So on page three, it says, he came softly, unobserved, and yet, strange to say, everyone recognized him. That might be the, one of the best passages in the poem, 
notice that he's again narrating this he's not actually reading the essay he's just describing it to Alyosha summarizing it and notice that he has this pride as he's narrating it he's excited to tell this part it's one of the best passages in the poem Ivan tells us um, the people are irresistibly drawn to him they surround him they flock about him follow him he moves silently in their midst with a gentle smile of infinite compassion the sun of love burns in his heart light and power shine from his eyes and the radiance shed on the people stirs their hearts with responsive love notice the way that jesus is presented here by ivan we have Jesus who shows up miraculously. Here is our, you know, flight of fancy as he describes in his, quote, literary introduction. Um, Jesus shows up in the middle of the, the Inquisition, in the middle of this horrible period in the church's history, and everyone immediately recognizes him. And he is this keen contrast with what the Inquisitor himself is actually doing where the church, where the Inquisition is burning people alive at the stake in the glory of God, um, Jesus instead is meekly walking through the crowd, um, and everyone nonetheless recognizes him. They bring him a child in a coffin, like a dead child, and Jesus raises the child back to life, thus, you know, pretty evidently proving that he is in fact Jesus. This is almost beat for beat something that happened in the Gospels. Um, where, you know, somebody came to him and said, you know, my daughter is dead. Can you raise her? And like, there's this whole thing. Um, but notice the reaction here. Here's Jesus walking through the crowd, you know, talking to the, or not really talking, but helping the people out and everybody recognizes him. He performs this miracle and then bam, the inquisitor is on him and they immediately arrest him and take him away. That's the first thing that you should notice about this. Again, one of these really important sort of unexpected twists that the story takes is that the church perceives Christ as a threat, that he is a heretic of the highest order. And the Grand Inquisitor doesn't like come to him and say, oh, we've made a horrible mistake. I'm so sorry, Jesus. No. The Grand Inquisitor knows exactly what he is doing. He recognizes Jesus just like everybody else in the crowd recognizes Jesus, and he still demands that, they, that he is arrested. He carries him off, and he delivers this long speech. Um, notice, he starts by saying that Jesus doesn't get to speak at this. Is it thou, thou, he says, but receiving no answer, he adds at once, don't answer, be silent. What canst thou say indeed? I know too well what thou wouldst say, and thou hast no right to add anything to what thou hadst said of old. Why then art thou come to hinder us? For thou hast come to hinder us, and thou knowest that. But dost thou know what will be tomorrow? I know not who thou art, and care not to know whether it is thou or only a semblance of him, but tomorrow I shall condemn thee and burn thee at the stake as the worst of heretics. And the very people who have today kissed thy feet, tomorrow with the faintest sign from me, will rush to heap up the embers of thy fire. Knowest thou that? Yes, maybe thou knowest it, he added with thoughtful penetration, never for a moment taking his eyes off the prisoner. So here the Grand Inquisitor confronts Jesus. He says, take him away. And he looks him square in the eye and he says, is it you, but don't answer me. Notice what he's implying here. That Jesus has already said his piece. The church already has everything that Jesus said. And he has no right to change it now. He has no right to add anything. The church controls it. He gave control of it to the church when he gave Peter the keys. And now it's done. 
And if he has anything else to add, then he better keep it damn well to himself because Christianity is done now. The Grand Inquisitor is the representative and he's just interfering with things. Notice too the threat that the Grand Inquisitor throws at him. That, you know, the very people who were like kissing your feet and bowing down to you today will help light your fire tomorrow at my command. He threatens to kill him. Like he says, I'm going to have you executed tomorrow. You will be burned as the worst of heretics and the people will gladly help me do so. On some level, this is definitely a reference back to the passion narrative, like Jesus going to the cross and the people gladly, you know, saying to crucify him. Um, it's clear that this, you know, is go just going to repeat. The Grand Inquisitor is assuming the same truths hold then as hold now. Again, nothing more can be added. But notice too that Alyosha reacts to this again every time that we get into this story for like during these early sections alyosha and ivan sort of make their presence known so alyosha says i don't quite understand what does it mean is it simply a wild fantasy or a mistake on the part of the old man and ivan responds take it as the last some impossible quid pro quo this for that if you are so corrupted by modern realism and can't stand anything fantastic if you like it to be a case of mistaken identity let it be so it is true, the old man was a 90, he may well be crazy over his set idea, he may have been struck by the appearance of the prisoner. It might, in fact, be simply his ravings, the delusion of an old man of 90 overexcited by the auto-de-fe of a hundred heretics the day before. But does it matter to us, after all, whether it was a mistake of identity or a wild fantasy? All that matters is that the old man should speak out, should speak openly of what he has thought in silence for 90 years. And Alyosha responds, but is the prisoner also silent? Does he look at him and not say a word? And Ivan says that's inevitable in any case. The old man had told him he hasn't the right to add anything of what he has said of old. One may say it's the most fundamental feature of Roman Catholicism, in my opinion at least. Notice, again, the story conforms to Ivan's own philosophy. This is how Ivan perceives the Catholic Church, the Catholic Church possessing all of what Jesus said, controlling it. It is now out of sync with what Jesus taught, but it doesn't matter because the, the Catholics have been entrusted with this story and it is now theirs to manipulate and change as they see fit. Ivan is critical of the Catholic Church here. Ivan is very critical of it. Part of that is because Dostoevsky is coming from the Orthodox tradition. The Russians don't believe in Catholicism. They have, you know, their own tradition stunning back all the way to like the the greek orthodox tradition and the very early components of the church in some ways it's more ancient in some ways it's not it's very complicated at the very least you'll notice he criticizes both the church especially the jesuits and the pope in this business of looking at the grand inquisitor the grand inquisitor is being equated by ivan to the pope especially in the 19th century because the Pope has recently issued a major decree that says, I am infallible. And the church is basically saying that whatever the Pope says is as true and real as anything that appears in the gospel. This ultramontanism was very controversial. It contributed to the German revolution, like Otto von Bismarck was absolutely against the Catholic Church and frequently persecuted Catholics in Germany. You will see equally violent reactions by the Russians, by the Anglicans. The Protestant Church, of course, has no truck with any of this. And even Catholics are sort of struggling to try and understand exactly what's going on in the church at this moment. It's a big deal. And Dostoevsky is 
pretty clearly con condemning it, or at least Ivan is condemning it. Um, he is saying that this is not what Jesus had in mind. And notice the way that the Grand Inquisitor continues from here. Um, notice that the Grand Inquisitor sort of goes back to the Bible, specifically the three temptations of Christ, and walks through each of them. Um, this is where things get long-winded and very super philosophical and probably super duper confusing, but you'll notice that all of the three questions that the Grand Inquisitor refers to, these are the questions from the Temptations in the Wilderness in Matthew 3, I want to I say. Um, according to the scripture, Jesus went into the wilderness for 40 days, and while he was out in the wilderness, the devil came up and tempted him three times. The first time, the devil came to him and said... You are Jesus, why don't you just turn these stones into bread and then save yourself from all of this suffering? And Jesus responds, man cannot live by bread alone, but by the word of God. Then the devil takes him up to a high tower and he says, cast yourself down from this high tower because if you really are Jesus, then the angels will catch you and you will not be hurt. And then the devil tempts him a third time. He takes him to a high mountain and says, look, from here you can see all of the kingdoms, all of the principalities of the world. They will all be yours if you just bow down and worship me, Satan. Notice how the Grand Inquisitor twists the way that these three temptations work. How the Grand Inquisitor twists them, how Ivan twists them, how they are all recontextualized. This is the complexity of modernism. Like, here we have this grand theological passage, this rich story from a tradition long ago, being reinterpreted and reinterpreted again. Reinterpreted by the Grand Inquisitor, who rejects it, and reinterpreted through Ivan, who accepts it. For the Grand Inquisitor, this, the, the freedom that Jesus represents by rejecting these temptations is bad. It is something that is ultimately going to contribute to the unhappiness of people. For Ivan, it is important to notice that freedom exists in opposition to the happiness promised by the church. As Alyosha will point out, Ivan is in favor of Jesus here. He supports the freedom that is offered. He just doesn't believe people are up to it. But let's look at what the, the Grand Inquisitor has to say. Let's walk through this, because there's, again, multiple layers and a lot going on. Um, so first, we have this issue of the bread. Look at page five on the, in the document. But seest thou these stones in this parched and barren wilderness? Turn them into bread, and mankind will run after thee like a flock of sheep, grateful and obedient, though forever trembling, lest thou withdraw thy hand and deny them thy bread. But thou wouldst not deprive man of freedom, and re didst reject the offer, thinking, What is that freedom worth, if obedience is bought with bread? Thou didst reply that man lives not by bread alone, but dost thou know that for the sake of that earthly bread the spirit of the earth will rise up against thee, and will strive with thee, and overcome thee, and all will follow him, crying, Who can compare with this beast? He has given us fire from heaven. Dost thou know that the ages will pass, and humanity will proclaim by the lips of their sages that there is no crime, and therefore no sin? There is only hunger? Feed men, 
and then ask of them virtue. That's what they'll write on the banner, which they will raise against thee and with which they will destroy thy temple. Where thy temple stood will rise a new building. The terrible tower of Babel will be built again. And though like the one of old, it will not be finished, yet thou mightest have prevented that new tower and have cut short the sufferings of men for a thousand years. For they will come back to us after a thousand years of agony with their tower. This is heavy, and I'm not going to deny that it's heavy. It is a rich, dense passage here, not just because of the different layers, but even the way that the Grand Inquisitor is interpreting it. Dostoevsky is talking about materialism here. He is talking about communism here, effectively. Now, the Grand Inquisitor is not a communist. This is definitely anachronism. Um, but the suggestion here is that when Jesus is offered, when you know, the devil comes to Jesus and says, you know, turn these stones into bread, and Jesus responds, man does not live by bread alone. What Jesus is actually doing, the interpretation of this passage that the Grand Inquisitor is giving us, is that Jesus refuses to bribe humanity into faith. He is not going to buy the allegiance of human beings. He is not going to buy Christians with the promise of feeding them. See, bread, quite conveniently for our purposes, at least in the Bible, frequently is used as like dually representing personal and material needs, like bread is how you feed yourself, but also like in the, the you know, communion service, the bread represents the body of Christ. Man needs the bread of life, not the bread of matter. He needs Jesus, he doesn't need just material satisfaction. But by contrast, in the 19th century, it is increasingly the case that all these revolutionaries from the French Revolution on are rejecting religion in the name of universal happiness. They are saying, I would rather have bread than this theological tripe. For centuries, people have been saying, you don't need bread, you need the truth. And the truth doesn't feed anyone. What's more, the Grand Inquisitor points out that bread is the one thing that could, in fact, unite them. Um, he says, they will find us and cry to us, feed us, for those who have promised us fire from heaven haven't given it. And then we shall finish building their tower, for he finishes the building who feeds them. And we alone shall feed them in thy name, declaring falsely that it is in thy name. Oh, never, never can they feed themselves without us. No science will give them bread so long as they remain free. In the end, they will lay their freedom at our feet and say to us, make us your slaves, but, free, but feed us. They will understand themselves at last that freedom and bread enough for all are inconceivable together, for never, never will they be able to share between them. Notice that this, there's this ongoing reference to the Tower of Babel. Again, we have this deep theological interpretation. The Tower of Babel is when all of these, you know, like early human beings back in Genesis decided to get together and build a tower that reached all the way up into heaven and then they would be like gods. It was an act of tremendous pride and sort of atheistic ascension. And God, of course, strikes them down and confuses their languages and everybody goes to the far corners of the universe and nobody ever agrees to bring things together again. The Grand Inquisitor suggests that it is bread that can in fact unite them. 
all of these communists are saying, you know, let us all fulfill our needs together. Let's give up on these complex ideologies. Let's give up on religion. Let's give up on, you know, all of these theologies. And instead, let's just agree to satisfy our own needs. Let's work in the factories. Let's seize the means of production. Let's make bread for ourselves. And if everyone is fed, everyone will be happy. And if everyone is happy enough, then we can actually work on building a society that functions rather than sort of getting lost in the weeds of, you know, giving people unnecessary power or devoting ourselves to these abstract ideals. This is what communism promises. And the Grand Inquisitor is on the side of the communists here. He is saying that they will exhaust themselves building their tower and eventually come back to the church and say, if you give us bread, we will follow you. He criticizes Jesus because Jesus wasn't willing to do that. Jesus rejected the bread. He did not turn the stones into bread. He said that the bread is worthless without truth. The Grand Inquisitor says the truth is worthless without bread. The Grand Inquisitor tells us that freedom, the freedom to believe whatever you want, is incompatible with the ability to make bread. The possibility that people will disagree about their needs, about their wants, about what is important in the world, makes it absolutely impossible that everyone gets fed. People can't be happy if disagreement is still on the table. Jesus represents that freedom, that freedom to disagree. The Grand Inquisitor represents bread, fulfilling needs, making people happy. And notice that he follows this through line through all three of these questions. So in the second question, this, you know, Jesus is brought to the top of the tower and the devil says, cast yourself down and you will be protected. The Grand Inquisitor once again interprets this. Once again, he says that, you know, by casting yourself down, you would create a miracle. And with a miracle, people would have something to believe in. It would be irrefutable, incontrovertible that Jesus is God. If all these people stood at the bottom of the tower and watched Jesus cast himself down, even if it didn't work, because it wouldn't, by tempting God, Jesus would have rejected what God was teaching, and therefore he'd just splat right on the ground. Even then, people would follow him. They would gather around and they would totally agree to just follow him because they want to believe in the miracle. They want to believe that God's going to magically solve their problems. And they will absolutely buy into any organization, any theology, any ideology that promises them that God will solve their problems. Even if they do, even if they reject bread, they will at the end of the day accept the promise of bread through some miraculous supernatural source. They want to believe in miracles is what it comes down to. And the Grand Inquisitor says, we will give them miracles. We will propagate miracles. We will teach miracles all over the place. We will run the show. We will have a monopoly on miracles. And as a result, people will fall down in front of us and they will worship us in a way that they never will worship you. Just as they would rather have bread than freedom, so they would rather have the promise of miracles than freedom. And Jesus once again misses the boat by refusing to succumb to this temptation. Lastly is perhaps the most clear example. There's Jesus brought up to the edge of the mountain and the devil says, you know, look out all of these cities, all these kingdoms, all these principalities, they can all be yours, just bow down and worship me. And he once again turns it down. He rejects authority. He rejects the possibility of taking control of the world and making them believe in him. And this is where the Grand Inquisitor disagrees the most. 
The Grand Inquisitor says, we are authority. The church is an authority. And it doesn't matter whether we're good, bad, indifferent, in, in league with you or otherwise, as long as we are willing to stand up and take their freedom from them, they will give it to us. The people will gladly give up their freedom. They do not deserve to have it. They do not want it. It just makes them miserable. Jesus, then, is this symbol of freedom throughout this passage. Jesus refused to give people what they wanted. He constantly withheld it from them. The people wanted bread, and Jesus said, no, I'm not going to just magically give you bread. The people wanted miracles, and Jesus said, nope, you're going to not get miracles. You will have to rely on your own faith. The people said, give us authority, show us what to do, and Jesus said, no, you're going to have to decide that for yourself. And in doing so, though that may have been the higher road, the Grand Inquisitor criticizes him for putting too much faith in human beings. Human beings who are awful and stupid and ignorant and mean and greedy. People who don't deserve and don't want freedom. They would rather be ruled by a corrupt authoritarian church that is willing to, you know, just give them empty promises as long as it gives them some hope of miraculous provision than actually solve their own problems, make their own choices, and decide for themselves what is good and evil. People would rather just come to the priest and hear what he has to say than have to make dis difficult decisions for themselves. That's what the Grand Inquisitor says. That's why Jesus is a heretic, as far as the Grand Inquisitor is concerned. Jesus represents that freedom, an undermining of what the church has built, and what the church has built is universal happiness. Sure, he says, you will save some with your system. There's no stopping them. Some of these people will get into heaven. But, and whereas the church is not offering heaven to anyone, instead what they are offering is worldly happiness, material satisfaction. That's it. We are the authority, we will give you food, we will make sure that you are taken care of. Just don't think, don't care, don't try and decide for yourself what is good or bad. Don't take responsibility for your own religion. We will do that for you. This is the heresy that Jesus represents. This is the attack. The church is so dramatically opposed to Jesus's teaching that Jesus himself would be considered a heretic. This is what Ivan is basically saying. Jesus prescribed freedom. The church pres prescribes obedience. The church refuses Jesus's teaching. The church has departed from it. And in doing so, they have brought satisfaction, happiness. What they have not brought is truth. And the Grand Inquisitor gladly admits this. Now, at this, Alyosha is upset. Like, notice that, you know, after all of this speech speechifying, like as much as we've talked about the Grand Inquisitor's attitude and how he is opposed to, you know, Jesus's teaching, notice that Ivan himself, in writing this, is bringing about his own perspective. He is saying that the church exists in opposition to Jesus, that the Grand Inquisitor as representative of the papacy is, stands in this stark relationship, this stark contrast with what Christianity actually teaches. Where the Bible says freedom, the church says authority. Where the Bible says truth, the church says bread. Alyosha responds 
and he's kind of flabbergasted. He doesn't know how to articulate what he thinks. But that's absurd, he cried flushing. Your poem is in praise of Jesus, not in blame of him, as you meant it to be. And who will believe you about freedom? Is that the way to understand it? That's not the idea of it in the Orthodox Church. That's Rome, and not even the whole of Rome. It's false. Those are the worst of the Catholics, the Inquisitors, the Jesuits. And there could not be such a fantastic creature as your Inquisitor. What are these sins of mankind they take on themselves? Who are these keepers of the mystery who have taken some curse upon themselves for the happiness of mankind? When have they been seen? We know the Jesuits. They are spoken ill of, but surely they are not what you describe. Alyosha points out that this is too far-fetched. The Grand Inquisitor presents himself as sacrificing his own salvation for the sake of all of the people he is making happy. He takes the sins upon himself. He says to Jesus, you know, you gave them freedom and they were not ready for it. They were, could not handle it. They aren't responsible for it. So instead I say, give me your freedom. I will decide for you what is right and wrong and I will take responsibility for you. These people who are not capable of dealing with their freedom, these people governed by the church will not enjoy eternal life. They will just die and be dead. In response, it's the inquisitor and the priest who will go to hell. They will suffer. They know they're violating the Bible's teachings, that they are rejecting what Jesus taught. And they do it anyway because they believe they are helping people. Helping people who are inequipped to deal with this stuff. As the Grand Inquisitor and in Ivan puts it, you know, here you have a hundred thousand priests taking on the sins of thousands of millions of people. The hundred thousand is going to make all the decisions, and therefore they are the only ones who will be held culpable. And God cannot judge them for this. They too are working as a sacrifice, though a sacrifice diametrically opposed to the sacrifice that Jesus presents. Jesus sacrificed himself for the sake of freedom. The church sacrifices itself for the sake of stability. Now, Alyosha doesn't buy this. The way he understands that the church isn't engaged in this weird, backwards, selfless theology where, like, priests become the sinners for the sake of saving the people who can't decide for themselves. Instead, Alyosha says, no, they're just greedy. They just want power. They just want money. And sure, maybe a couple of them are in it for altruistic means, but at the end of the day, they just, they want what everybody has wanted. Money, power, the, the domination. And Ivan questions that. Stay, stay. A fantasy, you say. Let it be so. Of course it's a fantasy. But allow me to say, do you really think the Roman Catholic movement of the last centuries is actually nothing but the lust of power, of filthy earthly gain? Is that Father Pacey's teaching? And Alyosha is forced to admit no. Father Pacey said something similar. There are probably Catholics out there who think they're doing the right thing by covering up what the Bible teaches in favor of stability, of giving people what they want instead of what they need. So Ivan basically flips the script on Alyosha. He says this is a thing that is happening. Maybe just one person, maybe not the entire church. It may very well be just a fantasy, but even then we've got to entertain this possibility. We've got to entertain that there is this sort of twisted selflessness that may inform and sort of motivate a lot of the people who are involved in the Catholic Church, whose selfishness and selflessness are sort of mingled together in this way. Um, and notice what this is saying on the part of Ivan and on the part of Dostoevsky. For Ivan's part, he's seeing the possibility 
that the church is doing something good, or at least has a good motivation, has a good intention. For all of the criticism leveled here at the church, Ivan is kind of sympathetic to the way that he presents the Grand Inquisitor. As much as Alyosha says, you know, Jesus is presented as a hero in this text, unfortunately, like against what, what Ivan intends, notice what Ivan does intend. Ivan intends to set up this contrast, this this contrast between what the church offers, the the food and the the you know authority, the complete relaxation from from one's responsibilities to decide between good and evil, and then what Jesus offers: freedom, uncertainty, insecurity, danger, and decision. Um, Ivan, in some ways, stands on the side of the church. People are not good enough to handle the responsibility for their own souls. They are not good enough to decide for themselves what is good and what is evil. But notice, too, the way that it ultimately ends. Alyosha condemns Ivan for this. He says that Ivan is struggling with this, that he is, you know, anguished for writing this. Um, and notice that Ivan himself admits that he is anguished. Um, towards the bottom of page 13, he says, why, it's all nonsense, Alyosha. It's only a senseless poem of a senseless student who could never write two lines of verse. Why do you take it so seriously? Surely you don't suppose I am going straight off to the Jesuits to join the men who are correcting his work. Good Lord, it's no business of mine. I told you, all I want is to live on to 30 and then dash the cup to the ground. Ivan has a plan. Namely, he's going to be a student He's going to enjoy his intellectual life while he's got it. And then as soon as he hits 30, as soon as he becomes actually responsible for himself, he intends to commit suicide. He doesn't see a purpose. He does not agree with the teaching of the church, which covers up the truth for the sake of, you know, a convenient and pleasant lie. Nor does he agree with Jesus, who offers a painful freedom in exchange for nothing. Ivan rejects both. He rejects the possibility of salvation and he rejects the possibility of material complacency. He wants to kill himself. And Alyosha is upset about this. But the little sticky leaves and the precious tombs and the blue sky and the woman you love, how will you live? How will you love them? Alyosha cried sorrowfully. With such a hell in your heart and your head, how can you? No, that's just what you were going away for, to join them. If not, you would, will kill yourself. You can't endure it. And Ivan says there is a strength to endure everything. And he refers to the Karamazovs. The strength of the Karamazovs is its debauchery, its baseness. And he seems to suggest by that casting the cup to the ground, either a, a suicide or an indulgence, like a completely succumbing to, to pleasures of the flesh, to just get drunk and, and follow his lust and, and do whatever he wants, because who cares? There's no consequences for him at all. As he puts it, everything is lawful. And this is a really important quote. This is one of the big ones for Dostoevsky, one that a lot of people quote from him and that is going to get carried away a lot. Alyosha is the one who actually says it here. Everything is lawful, you mean. Everything is lawful, is that it? And notice Ivan's reaction. Ivan scowled and all at once turned strangely pale. Ah, you've caught up yesterday's phrase which so offended me, Usov, and which Dmitri pounced upon so naively and paraphrased. He smiled queerly. Yes, if you like, everything is lawful since the word has been said. I won't deny it. And Mitya's version isn't bad. 
Ivan said earlier, just in passing, blink and you'll miss it, that if God doesn't exist, or if God isn't worth following, then everything is permitted. This is how it's usually phrased. All is permitted or everything is permitted. And this actually becomes the foundation of existential philosophy, which we'll talk about in the weeks to come. This, however, is not what Dostoevsky believes. Remember, this is Ivan who says it. And Ivan is anguished. Ivan is not happy or healthy, and Alyosha knows this about him. Ivan says that all is permitted out of despair. But it is a despair brought about because of Ivan's modern world and because of his modern situation. It's the 19th century. God and faith and religion have all been systematically rejected. Multiple scholars at this point have been poking you know, out criticism in the way that the Bible works, arguing that it's not authentic. Um, here you can see you know, the church accepting more power than is appropriate for them, something that Dostoevsky and Ivan are both clearly criticizing here. Um, in this world where all of the authorities seem to be falling apart around him, Ivan chooses not to care, not to give a crap kill himself or indulge in pleasure or you know make a disgrace of himself who cares god is dead all is permitted now god is dead is a mentally a nietzsche thing we'll talk about that later but the principle still applies here but notice that dostoevsky isn't on ivan's side dostoevsky's on alyosha's side he is mortified he is upset he his heart breaks for Ivan and for all of those Russian scholars who are convinced that there is nothing in the world for them. All those nihilists, as this word is sort of coming to, to the fore. Notice Alyosha's response, though. I thought that going away from here, I have you at least, Ivan said suddenly with unexpected feeling. But now I see that there is no place for me even in your heart, my dear hermit. The formula, all is lawful, I won't renounce. Will you renounce me for that? Yes? Alyosha got up, went to him, and softly kissed him on the lips. Just as the Inquisitor at the end of the Grand Inquisitor kisses, or just as Christ kisses the Grand Inquisitor on the lips at the end of, of Ivan's essay, and ultimately the Inquisitor is forced to let him go. Notice Ivan's response. That's plagiarism, cries, cried Ivan, highly delighted. You stole that from my poem. Thank you, though. Get up, Alyosha. It's time we were going, both of us. Notice that what Dostoevsky prescribes here is compassion. Ivan is angry. Ivan is upset. Ivan is in despair. Ivan doesn't know which end is up, and the only thing that he seems to know to do is to either just throw himself off, to not care. Everything is permitted. Who cares? There are no rules. Do what you want. Alyosha responds by kissing him by showing him affection. And that's how it ends in the Grand Inquisitor as well. For all of the rage in the Grand Inquisitor's heart, all of the hatred the Grand Inquisitor has, this anguish the Grand Inquisitor feels, this conflict between you know making sure that people are happy, but knowing that it is all for the sake of a lie, for the sake of a, or a lie that covers up an even greater truth that just people aren't ready to handle. Jesus kisses him. The Grand Inquisitor, too, is loved. 
Jesus feels compassion even for this terrible sinner, this murderer and hypocrite and horrible person. Alyosha, like Jesus, forgives Ivan, shows him that they are still brothers. And Dostoevsky seems to be implying here that for all of Ivan's intellectualism, all of his, you know, high academic learning and all of his, you know, theorizing and, and artifact, artistic endeavor and all of his philosophizing, at the end of the day, it is kind of meaningless. He just suffers. He's just hurting. And Alyosha can overcome all of that just by loving him, by showing him even the slightest bit of affection. Now, here we make a giant jump. Like, I, I have my little description there. Um, a lot happens between, you know, chapter two of part, or chapter five of, like, part three and chapter nine of part six or something. I forget exactly where. Um, at any rate, this is long after most of the book has taken place. Like, the Great Inquisitor is in the front half of the book. The devil is, like, the back quarter. Um, at this point, there has been a murder. Mr. Father Karamazov was murdered ostensibly by their brother Mishka, Dmitri, um, who was passionate and, you know, driven to rage by his father's flaunting of their common mistress. Um, Ivan is supposedly not involved. He's not even in town at the time. But it turns out that the actual murderer, Smerdyakov, who is framing Dmitri did it supposedly under the understanding that Ivan had commanded him to. That Smerdyakov threatened to kill the father, Ivan responded with a nod, and then ducked off to allow Smerdyakov to do it, so Smerdyakov perceives this as tacit acceptance on Ivan's part. And Ivan, for all of his philosophizing, for all of his, you know, I will now sink into despair and horror and gluttony and whatever, and nothing matters and all is permitted, Ivan feels horrible guilt even though he's not directly culpable even though he hasn't in fact killed his father even though he's just implicated and it could very well be that Smerdyakov is just messing with his head Ivan feels culpable he feels his conscience which he imagined didn't exist panged which is where the devil shows up and I want to start by stressing how different Dostoevsky's version of the devil is from all the other devils we've encountered so far in our reading. Um, just as the church at this point is a radically different animal from any form of the church we've seen at this point, you know, here is like Ivan characterizing the church as this government power structure that just yields happiness without any ideological backing that violates its own central principles in order to stress this truth of universal complacency um just as the church is now sort of toothless in the perspective of dostoevsky and of ivan now we see the devil as weirdly also toothless um so we get this description of Ivan apparently having a case of brain fever. And Ivan seems to have had visitations from this devil before. Notice how he says that it's a, just a hallucination. Like, that's kind of the issue here. We don't know if this is an actual devil that Dostoevsky has conjured into Ivan's room, or if this is just a hallucination, or if it's both. If 
Ivan is in fact being tormented, being tempted by a devil the same way as Jesus was being tempted by the devil in the Grand Inquisitor poem. Like, notice that that's never exactly clear. But notice, too, how the devil appears. Like, we've seen the devil show up in a lot of weird forms at this point. We've seen Poodle Devil harassing Goethe and barking as he's trying to translate John 1. We've got, like, the Franciscan Friar Devil, who, you know, that was what Marlowe commanded was the best form for him. We've got the, the like, uber-powerful devil in Milton with his giant spear and his giant shield you know commanding the legions of hell far more powerful than any other you know human human army has ever been has ever been rallied together and we've got like gigantic weeping devil from dante now we have petty sponger devil notice the description here um so we have, like, this is on page 15 of the document. And so he was sitting, almost conscious himself of his delirium, and, as I have said already, looking persistently at some object on the sofa against the opposite wall. Someone appeared to be sitting there, though goodness knows how he had come in, for he had not been in the room when Ivan came into it on his return from Smerdyakov. This was a person, or, more accurately speaking, a Russian gentleman of a particular kind, no longer young, qui frise le cinquantaine, who was about 50, that that is, as the French say, which with rather long, still thick, dark hair, slightly streaked with gray, and a small pointed beard. He was wearing a brownish reefer jacket, rather shabby, evidently made by a good tailor, though, and of a fashion at least three years old that had been discarded by smart and well-to-do people for the last two years. His linen and his long scarf-like necktie were all such as are worn by people who aim at being stylish, but on closer inspection his linen was not over-clean, and his wide scarf was very threadbare. The visitor's check trousers were of excellent cut, but were too light in color and too tight for the present fashion. His soft, fluffy white hat was out of keeping with the season. Notice that Dostoevsky has a very precise description here of what we're dealing with. He has a very specific image in mind, a very specific character for this devil. He is a 50-year-old gentleman, but he is a 50-year-old gentleman who has fallen on hard times. He is wearing the finest garments of three years ago. Like, he is wearing the best jacket, the best pants, but they're all a little faded, a little threadbare, a little overly used, a little worn, and just a little out of fashion. He is behind the times, in short. And notice how significant this is. That here is our devil, and he is no longer in fashion. People don't believe in him anymore, in short. You know, the devil of Faust and, and of Do Dr. Faustus and of Paradise Lost, all of these were vibrant. They were, you know, temptations that people felt at this exact moment. Um, they were exactly in tune with what people wanted, what people believed, what was common and, and you know, sort of current at the time. Even the devil, in the, the devil in Tom Walker, you know, he is very American. He is very contemporary with all of the Puritans who are hanging around. Um, he is tempting now. But instead, the devil here is passe. You know, people don't believe in the devil anymore. They don't care what the devil offers. They don't, they're not interested in the temptations that the devil presents. Instead, the devil is old hat. It's boring. He's, you know, not with it. He's not cool. And notice, 
In brief, there was every appearance of gentility on straightened means. It looked as though this gentleman belonged to that class of idle landowners who used to flourish in the times of serfdom. He had unmistakably been at some time in good and fashionable society, had once had good connections, had possibly preserved them indeed, but after a gay youth becoming gradually impoverished on the abolition of serfdom, he had sunk into the position of a poor relation of the best class, wandering from one good old friend to another, and received by them for his companionable and accommodating disposition, and as being, after all, a gentleman who could be asked to sit down with anyone, though, of course, not in a place of honor. Such gentlemen of accommodating temper and dependent position who can tell a story, take a hand at cards, and who have a distinct aversion for any duties that may be forced upon them are usually solitary creatures, either bachelors or widowers. Sometimes they have children, but if so, the children are always being brought up at a distance, at some aunts, to whom these gentlemen never allude in good society, seeming ashamed of the relationship. They gradually lose sight of their children altogether, though at intervals they receive a birthday or Christmas letter from them and sometimes even answer it. Notice, here we have not just somebody who's out of fashion, but somebody who can't even, like, take care of themselves. They used to be rich. Like, this, this devil is in the guise of an old Russian landowner, someone who used to own serfs but could not deal with the, the transition from serfdom to the, the freedom that Alexander II promised. This reform wiped him out, in short. And now... He is bouncing around from relation to relation. He is sponging. He is couch surfing, so to speak. Um, he doesn't have a home. He doesn't have an estate. But he's got all the qualifications for a decent person to have around. He can play a decent hand at cards. He can tell a good story. He's good company. He's pleasant to hang out with. So he never seems to want for much of anything. For all of his destitution, for all of his poor situation, for all of his lack of money, somebody is always willing to take him in, and somebody is always willing to help him out. He's alone, he's sad, even pathetic in a way, but he's also sort of indispensable. He has figured out how to survive without accomplishing anything, without having anything to own or to, to sort of take for his own. Um, that's the picture that Dostoevsky has here. The devil has become, has been reduced to just kind of a lazy couch surfing bum. Not a bad person, not evil, just lazy. Just unable to enjoy the lifestyle they used to. They have given up all their responsibilities and they're just coasting. And notice that this very much defines the devil's way of speaking too. You'll notice that he frequently brings up these like silly little stories, like the story about the ax or the story about like how he went to the doctor and he, he got like turned away because it was the wrong specialist and he had to go and like find the left nostril specialist in Vienna rather than the right nostril specialist in Paris. Like he tells these silly stories that all will have this sort of cutting satirical edge to them. They're all a little bit mean uh, to them. And Ivan is always frustrated by them, but they're fun stories. They're silly and they're entertaining. Um, the devil is meaninglessly entertaining. He will distract you, divert you. That's kind of what he is here. But notice also the relationship that he has with Ivan. Here is our unexpected visitor with his kind of shabby clothes that used to be really snazzy, but now not so much. 
And he says, I say, he began to Ivan, excuse me, I only mentioned it to remind you, you went to Smerdyakovs to find out about Katerina Ivanovna, but you came away without finding out anything about her. You probably forgot. Ah, yes, broke from Ivan, and his face grew gloomy with uneasiness. Yes, I'd forgotten, but it doesn't matter now. Never mind, till, till tomorrow, he muttered to himself. And, and you... He added, addressing his visitor, I should have remembered that my, myself in a minute, for that was just what was tormenting me. Why do you interfere as if I should believe that you prompted me and that I didn't remember it of myself? Now, Ivan knows that this apparition, the devil here, is a hallucination. He immediately suspects him. He knows that he can't believe it. He knows that he's losing his mind, in short. But Ivan is convinced he can power through it. Ivan is convinced that he doesn't need help, that he is, you know, a capable, intelligent man. He is well in control of his faculties. He doesn't buy into these fictions. He is not, you know, a mystic. He is not a Christian. He doesn't do superstition. He's not going to believe that this devil is actually here. He's going to just will himself not to buy into it. So he challenges him. Why would you remind me of that? I was just going to remember it in a moment. You don't need to say it. Like, you're just a product of my imagination anyway. And notice that the devil is cool with this. Don't believe it then, said the gentleman, smiling amicably. What's the good of believing against your will? Besides, proofs are no help to believing, especially material proofs. Thomas believed, not because he saw Christ risen, but because he wanted to believe, before he saw. Look at the spiritualists, for instance. I am very fond of them. Only fancy, they imagine they are serving the cause of religion because the devils show them their horns from the other world. That, they say, is a material proof, so to speak, of the existence of another world. The other world and material proofs. What next? And if you come to that, does proving there's a devil prove there's a god? I want to join an idealist society. I'll lead the opposition in it. I'll say I'm a realist, but not a materialist. Ha ha! And Ivan is getting grumpy. Now, the devil is playing games here. Again, he's being friendly about it. Like, much like that sponger who's just hanging around, you know, getting by by being entertaining to listen to stories. You know, as much, just like that, he tells this little anecdote. He says that he wants to join the, the, you know, idealist society and yet lead the opposition. The idealists are opposed to the materialists. The materialists are the ones who only believe in bread, who say that all that should matter in our world is fulfilling everybody's physical needs. Whereas the idealists do believe in some kind of spiritual reality. Um, and in fact, he criticizes the spiritualists, as he calls them, for saying that they have proof in God, because faith was always a crucial part of that. If they have convincing proof that devils exist, well, then they're not actually proving anything, because the whole tenet, the whole foundation of, of Christian religion is in faith. It can't be proven. If it could be proven, it wouldn't mean anything. Just think of what the Grand Inquisitor says. We would rather it be proven because then it wouldn't weigh anything. Then people would just accept it and it wouldn't be a challenge. It wouldn't be a question. It wouldn't be a choice. But Ivan is still frustrated. Listen, Ivan suddenly got up from the table. I seem to be delirious. I am delirious, in fact. Talk any nonsense you'd like. I don't care. You won't drive me to fury as you did last time. But I feel somehow ashamed. I want to walk about the room. I sometimes don't see you and don't even hear your voices I did last time, but I always guess what you were prating, for it's I, I myself speaking, not you. Only I don't know whether I was dreaming last time or whether I really saw you. I'll, I'll wet a towel and put it on my head and perhaps you'll vanish into air. The battle here is between the devil and Ivan. The devil wants to convince Ivan that he's real. 
or rather not to like, you know, gain power over him, not to sort of, you know, capture his soul or whatever, but just to mess with him. Like Ivan is fighting against this because he knows that the devil can't be there. He knows it's a hallucination. He is a materialist. He doesn't buy into this idealistic nonsense. He doesn't buy into Christianity. He is firmly an atheist. He wouldn't accept Christianity even if it were true. So there's no way that the devil can be tormenting him. So he knows it's a hallucination. So it is up to him to resist it with every fiber of his being, to prevent the devil from getting any hold over him, to not accept the devil as real. The devil, by contrast, wants to prove that Ivan isn't in control of his faculties. The danger here isn't necessarily for Ivan's soul the way that it is for Faust's soul, with the devil like trying to tempt him into throwing his soul away. Instead, Ivan is convinced that he doesn't have a soul. Not in the way that he's willing to sell it easily, but he's not willing to admit that devils even exist. His entire worldview is based on this fundamental materialism. There are no devils, there is no God, everything is permitted, the world is chaos and shit, like, just do what you want. But that assumes that he is over it, that he is bigger than that, that he is not a part of it. See, the key to Ivan's character here, the key that both Alyosha struggles with and that we see here in this devil passage is that Ivan thinks he's above all this. Ivan thinks he can see the th everything so clearly that it doesn't affect him. He's over it all. He is above it. The morality of the normal f world of Christianity and peasants and you know good and evil, that all does not touch him. But the assumption is that he isn't involved in it. If he can't trust his faculties, if he can't trust his senses, if he can't overpower, if he cannot like strike down this hallucination with the sheer power of his intellect, then he's not that special. He's not over it. He is still succumbed to the vicissitudes of, you know, day-to-day -day life. So... Notice the way that the devil proceeds. This is not actually convincing Ivan that he exists. He's very careful about it. The devil's game here is not clear, nor is his motivation. Um, but notice that Ivan resists his just normal storytelling at every turn. Never for one minute have I taken you for reality, Ivan cried with a sort of fury. This is his protest. This is his battle. You were a lie. You were my illness. You were a phantom. It's only that I don't know how to destroy you and I see I must suffer for a time. You were my hallucination. You were the incarnation of myself, but only of one side of me, of my thoughts and feelings, but only the nastiest and stupidest of them. From that point of view, you might be of interest to me if only I had time to waste on you. Notice that Ivan knows that he's a hallucination and therefore must assume that the devil is a reflection of himself. That this relation that he is seeing here is just all the gross, base, stupid parts of Ivan. That's who this hallucination is. It's nothing new. If it was something new, then it could theoretically be something other. And notice that the devil plays with this idea. There's that line a little while later where, um... 
where the devil like drops this little Latin phrase um, here on page 18, it says, why not? If I sometimes put on fleshly form, I put on fleshly form and I take the consequences when he says that he's got rheumatism now, like the devil is sick. Um, he says, Satan sum et nil humanum ame alienum puto, which is from an old Latin play. Um, I am man, nothing human is unknown to me, the Latin originally said, but in this case, the devil adapts it. I am Satan, therefore nothing human is unknown to me. Presumably, Satan also understands what it is to be human, is basically what he says. And Ivan is steps back at this. What? What? Satan summit nil humanum? Th that's not bad for the devil. I am glad I've pleased you at last. But you didn't get that from me. Ivan stopped suddenly, seeming struck. That never entered my head. That's strange. C'est du nouveau, n'est-ce pas? And something new. This time I'll act honestly and explain to you. Listen, in dreams and especially in nightmares, from indigestion or anything, a man sees sometimes such artistic visions, such complex and real actuality, such events, even a whole world of events woven into such a plot with such unexpected details from the most exalted matters to the last button on a cuff, as I swear Leo Tolstoy has never invented. Yet some such dreams are sometimes seen not by writers, but by the most ordinary people, officials, journalists, priests. The subject is a complete enigma. A statesman confessed to me, indeed, that all his best ideas came to him when he was asleep. Well, that's how it is now, though I am your hallucination, yet just as in a nightmare, I say original things which had not entered your head before. Notice here it seems that the devil is backtracking. Like, Ivan is on the brink of admitting, wait, hold on, that didn't come from me. I had never thought that before. How could you say something to me that I've never experienced, never thought? You are just me. You are just a hallucination. So how could you come up with something new? And yet the devil explains why. Like, he explains that, you know, people always dream unique things, that some people always get their best ideas while they sleep, and he tells a little anecdote about the, the, the random statesman. Like, again, it's all this petty storytelling, just like the sponger would. But notice that Dostoevsky is not being so clear with us. The devil explains himself away as a hallucination to Ivan, which would theoretically be against his motivation. Like, if he really wants to drag Ivan down with him... Presumably he would want to just say, oh, yeah, I'm totally new. Look, I can come up with all... But no, instead he explains using this very academic, very intellectual reasoning that would appeal to Ivan that he isn't real. That this is all within the purview of this hallucination. The goal then seems to be not to actually, you know, convince that he, Ivan that he is real, but to confuse Ivan. To further drive Ivan into insanity to further prevent Ivan from figuring out what's going on. Remember, Ivan's whole game here is he's going to overpower it. He's going to be smarter than the devil. He's going to will himself through the devil's temptations and tricks. But it becomes more and more difficult when the devil is himself offering up solutions. The devil is himself saying, I am just a hallucination, and here's why, and here's my argument, and here's how that's possible. Even though Ivan himself can't come up with these conclusions. Now, unfortunately, we're coming to sort of the end of my time here, and I don't want to, you know, go too far over, though I do sort of love this passage. Um, I especially love the whole story about, like, the devil getting the cold from flying through space, like he's in a coat and tails, and he's apparently, like, traveling through the vast reaches of space, um, and how it's so cold there that, like, 
you he compares it to like the peasant girls daring some poor peasant boy to to put his tongue to an axe in the freezing cold that gets frozen to an you know again like the devil it's all scattershot it's all over the place and and ivan's like wait an axe there was an axe in space because he's compute confused about it and the devil's like oh the axe in space good grief like just imagine if that was the case it would just orbit the earth forever and ever and ever and people would like measure their calculator or their calendars by it like people would calculate the time based on the rising and falling of the axe like he just further lapses into this these stories these anecdotes tale after tale that's all meaningless and, and confusing just further sort of enveloping ivan in this pointless talk but that's the point here that's what Dostoevsky is getting at. That's the part of Ivan that Ivan most resents. That's the part that he hates. The part that the devil seems to embody. Why he calls it the stupidest part of him. It is distraction. It is, here is this simple question. Let us confuse it with stories and anecdotes and amusing, entertaining fables and all sorts of things. And you'll notice that when Ivan actually starts to snap, it's when the devil starts quoting his work back at him. So when you get down to, you know, like this story that the devil tells, um, that like Ivan and, and the devil are wandering through this conversation in this sort of tortuous fashion. Um, and finally we get this anecdote about the guy who is, who dies. Um, he is an ardent materialist, an ardent scientific person, and he is not sentenced to hell, but instead he is, like, removed from heaven, far, far away. And he's, like, given a place, and somebody tells him, you know, it's a quadrillion miles, a quadrillion kilometers to get into heaven. You can walk all the way there if you so desire. And the guy's like, well, that's ridiculous. It doesn't matter. Heaven doesn't exist. I can just sit here and it'll be the same. You know, I can just sit here for all infinity and it won't matter. But eventually, after a thousand years or so, he gets up and he walks the quadrillion kilometers. It takes forever because it's this huge distance. It might as well be infinity, but it isn't. And then the devil says that the guy is in heaven for all of two seconds before he says it was worth it. All those quadrillion miles, all of that time, all of that, you know, wasted effort. And yet, in two seconds of heaven, it's worth it. And Ivan says, wait, that was something I came up with. That is a story from my youth. Um, I've caught you, Ivan cried, with an almost childish delight. This is page 23. As though he had succeeded in remembering something at last. That anecdote about the quadrillion years, I made it up myself. I was 17 then. I was at the high school. I made up that anecdote and told it to a schoolfellow called Korovkin. It was at Moscow. The anecdote is so characteristic that I couldn't have taken it from anywhere. I thought I'd forgotten it, but I've unconsciously recalled it. I, I recalled it myself. It was not you telling it. Thousands of things are unconsciously remembered like that. Even when people are being taken to execution, it's come back to me in a dream. You are that dream. You were a dream, not a living creature. Again, Ivan is justifying it to himself, rationalizing. Yes, it's my story. You didn't tell me this brand new story from nowhere. You're just repeating my old stories back to me. And the devil starts repeating other stories. Um, with the vehemence with which you deny my existence, laughed the gentleman, I'm convinced that you believe in me. And Ivan denies this, not in the slightest. I haven't a hundredth part of a grain of faith in you, but you have the thousandth of a grain. Homeopathic doses perhaps are the strongest. Confess that you have faith even to the ten thousandth of a grain. Not for one minute, cried Ivan furiously, but I should like to believe in you, he added strangely. 
Aha, there's an admission, but I am good-natured. I'll come to your assistance again. Listen, it was I caught you, not you, me. I told you your anecdote you'd forgotten on purpose, so as to destroy your faith in me completely. Again, the devil is messing with Ivan's head here. You are lying, Ivan says. The object of your visit is to convince me of your existence. Just so. But hesitation, suspense, conflict between belief and disbelief is sometimes such torture to a conscientious man, such as you are, that it's better to hang oneself at once. Knowing that you were inclined to believe in me, I administered some disbelief by telling you that anecdote. I lead you to belief and disbelief by turns, and I have my motive in it. It's the new method. As soon as you disbelieve in me completely, you'll begin assuring me to my face that I am not a dream but a reality. I know you. Then I shall have attained my object, which is an honorable one. I shall sow in you only a tiny grain of faith, and it will grow into an oak tree. And such an oak tree, that sitting on it, you will long to enter the ranks of the hermits in the wilderness and the saintly women, for that is what you are secretly longing for. You'll dine on locusts. You'll wander into the wilderness to save your soul. Notice that before the devil told us this very fact, that his ultimate goal was not to, like, you know, become the most powerful devil and to overthrow heaven, but rather to become like a 250-pound merchant's wife and light a candle honestly for the sake of her faith. That's what the devil aspires for, for a complete renunciation of who he is, a complete forgetting of who he is. This is what he says to Ivan as well. This is what you want as well. If I am your reflection, then that desire is your reflection as well. What you want is faith. What you want is to believe in me, in something, to reject all this intellectualism, to forget all the smart stuff you've learned, and to just become some ignorant peasant woman, some ignorant hermit in the wilderness who just eats locusts and believes with every fiber of their being. Then it's firm the salvation of my soul you are working, you scoundrel. One must do a good work sometimes. How ill-humored you are. Fool, did you ever tempt those holy men who ate locusts and prayed 17 years in the wilderness till they were overgrown with moss? And he says yes. And then there are more anecdotes, and there are more stories, and there are more bits and pieces. And then finally, he starts referring to some of the other stories that Ivan has written. Specifically, he refers first to this, like, geological treatise, apparently. Um, but then at the geological cataclysm, but he also speaks of the Grand Inquisitor. He says, my dear fellow, I know a most charming and attractive young Russian gentleman, a young thinker and a great lover of literature and art, the author of a promising poem entitled The Grand Inquisitor. I was only thinking of him. Again, the devil is deliberately saying, you know, yes, I am repeating your ideas back to you. But notice how Ivan responds. I forbid you to speak of the Grand Inquisitor, cried Ivan, crimson with shame. And the geological cataclysm, do you remember? That was a poem now. Hold your tongue or I'll kill you. You'll kill me? No, excuse me, I will speak. I came to treat myself to that pleasure. Oh, I love the dreams of my ardent young friends, quivering with eagerness for life. There are new men, you decided last spring when you were meaning to come here. They proposed to destroy everything and begin with cannibalism. Stupid fellows. They didn't ask my advice. I maintain that nothing need to be destroyed, that we only need to destroy the idea of God and man. That's how we have to set to work. It's that, that we must begin with. Oh, blind race of men who have no understanding. As soon as men have all of them denied God, and I believe that period, analogous with geological periods, will come to pass, the old conception of the universe will fall of itself without cannibalism. And what's more, the old morality and everything will begin anew. Notice that he's describing virtually the same pattern that the Grand Inquisitor did. That we, first there is this radical materialism, we reject God, but then they'll eventually just come back to the church and demand their bread along with their directions, and they will just go back to being sheep. Notice 
the devil is now putting Ivan in the position of all of those peasants, all of those stupid people. And Ivan is incredibly frustrated by this. This is what Ivan most fears, is most challenged by. The devil quoting his Grand Inquisitor, this poem that he took such pride in, remember how much he enjoyed talking about it to Alyosha, now the devil is quoting it back to him, and he realizes that it is the devil's voice. It is just stupidity, just banality. This great thing that he's accomplished is just dumb in the voice of his opponent here, in the voice of his hallucination. The devil starts quoting this very philosophy. There is no law for God. Where God stands, a place is holy. Where I stand at once will be the foremost place. All things are lawful, and that's the end of it. The devil quotes his philosophy back to him as though it were just three years old hat, something meaningless, something trivial that some random visitor who has no significance, all out of fashion, quotes back at him. And Ivan realizes that this threat in this moment, what if he isn't above all this? What if he isn't some great intellectual, some brilliant academic? What if he isn't seeing the world through new eyes for the first time? What if he is just another mediocrity what if all of his ideas are just devil's anecdotes like the axe rising and falling or the left nostril doctor what if it's all just stupid what if ivan is just stupid that's what really terrifies him here that's what causes him to snap and at this moment Ivan suddenly snatched a glass from the table and flung it at the orator. And again, this is a reference. There's another layer of meaning here. The devil even points it out. Ah, mais c'est bête enfant, but it's so stupid, really. He remembers Luther's inkstand. Famously, Martin Luther was supposedly tempted by the devil after a long night of writing and threw his inkstand at him to get him to go away. Ivan does the same here. But the devil has won. At this moment, Ivan concedes that the devil exists. He throws the inkstand to get rid of him because he believes the way that Luther believed in the devil sitting there. He's no longer just a hallucination. Even though it's right at this moment that the devil was quoting Ivan's own philosophy directly back at him, he was most obviously just Ivan repeating his own ideas back to himself. This is the moment when Ivan can't tolerate it anymore. He doesn't throw that inkstand at the devil because he's the devil. He throws that inkstand at himself because he hates himself. He cannot tolerate the possibility of him being anything less than this sort of all-seeing intellectual prodigy. This person above conventional morality, above intellectual limitation, above his own hallucination. The hallucination has wrangled him into it, has enraged him to the point that Ivan himself is furious at himself cannot believe that he got suckered in by Smerdyakov, cannot believe that Alyosha is immune to his intellectual philosophizing, cannot believe that at the end of the day he is powerless, impotent, mediocre. He too is just a sponger, bouncing from place to place, no actual worth to what he's doing. And Ivan can't handle this. It is what puts him over the edge. At the end of the day, he realizes he is just a lousy, crappy, ignorant sinner like all those people that he presumed to be above, that he presumed to judge. 
and he can't handle that. Ivan represents this whole class in Russia, these intellectuals suffering, dying for their art, struggling pointlessly. And remember Dostoevsky's solution to this, back from the Grand Inquisitor, all they need is a hug. All they need is for Alyosha to show up and kiss him on the lips and show just a little bit of affection. Ivan doesn't need some grand solution to the machinations of the universe. He doesn't need to figure out, you know, what to do now that God is gone or prove definitively that God does not exist or, or demonstrate to himself the truth of what he has to say or write some grand treatise that, you know, blows open the, the truth on, on the reality and how we should act in it. No, what he needs is, is someone to care about him, to tell him it's okay. He needs a doctor. He doesn't need some fancy specialist or some fancy story. He doesn't need some philosophical solution. He just needs someone to care about him. That basic fundamental Christian love that he supposedly is so high above is exactly what would solve his problem. But he doesn't have it. He is alone. He is fighting with his inner demons, in this case very literally, because he refuses to accept help. His pride is too great. And it's his pride that will destroy him in this case. It's this pride that ultimately leads him to failing to overcome the devil. Because of course, no one can overcome their hallucinations. That's what makes a hallucination a hallucination. You can't govern your own mind with your mind. It's not the way it works. You govern your own mind with confidence with help with people around you who care about you and who offer to help you and i find this especially meaningful right now in our current moment um as much as this was absolutely a huge thing in the 19th century with all these you know untamed russian intellectuals hanging around i suspect all of us also know somebody who is you know more smart than sensible Someone whose ideas are bigger than their ability to deal with them. Someone who thinks that they can talk themselves out of any situation. The internet is kind of full of those people right now. Who believe that they can just intellectualize themselves out of being a decent person. Like Ivan does. I suspect that Dostoevsky's solution would work in this case as well. Just a little compassion. Just a little love in short. Those are the layers here. Ivan is compelling not because his ideas are good. Ivan is compelling because he is like us. He is carried away by his ideas. He is tempted to more crazy and ridiculous ideas by his devil. And the devil in this case isn't some exorbitant high power. He doesn't need to be. He's just a mediocrity. He's small, like Ivan. And he reveals how small Ivan is as well.